I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Karen Walwyn. She's a Steinway artist, pianist, a composer, and an associate professor at Howard University. She's also a leading figure on Florence Price and her music, and gave the premiere recording of Price's Piano Concerto. We talk about the life and music of Florence Price, which had triumphs, like her music being performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, but she also faced the tragedies of the Jim Crow South and abuse. Stay with us to learn about her journey, unique musical characteristics, and more. What are we listening to, Karen? The last movement, the last dance from In the Lano Cotton Suite by Florence Price. It's particularly characteristic of her writing of the Juba. The Juba dance was a very special characteristic from the days of slavery because it was the um, kind of rhythm that a lot of the slaves would dance to when they were celebrating marriages or births, kind of a one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. The emphasis is on the two and the four. And so it's meant to be very spirited, very light, and not too fast, as a matter of fact. Okay. That was one of the pieces that was also discovered in 2009, wasn't it? That was one of the pieces that I was very blessed to have had the opportunity to receive. The pieces that I had a chance to take a look at were especially beautiful in the way that she paints. She paints pictures with the notes. And the titles are represented literally by the image of the writing on the page. And so you could look at one page and almost assume this might be about clouds or look at another page of music and assume this might be about a rocking chair. And so it's very interesting to have had that opportunity to sift through a lot of that music that had just been rediscovered. And we'll get into that rediscovery in a little bit, but she died in 1953. And she's seen some popularity in recent years. But I'm wondering why her music fell into obscurity in the decades following her death in the first place. Because I went to the same conservatory that Florence Price did from 2005 to 2009, the New England Conservatory. And I don't remember her name ever being mentioned, any of her music being played. I did not know about her whatsoever. So it seems like after this, she became popular. And I'm wondering what happened. That is a very good question, and it's a loaded question. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind, I'd like to take you back a little ways okay. um, to set the scene of that period of time just before Florence Price was born. And this would be in the 1880s? Yes, looking back somewhere between the 1865 and 1877. That was the urban South starting to form, especially inside of the Black community. And in Little Rock, for example, three distinct social classes were starting to develop. 
We had the lower class, which was the majority of uh, Little Rock's Blacks who lived in poverty, had little education, few advanced skills. You had the middle class, where those that started with their own businesses, and then you had an upper class, which was the smallest number in population that either came to the city without having been just recently freed, but had lived as a free Black person and started their businesses in Little Rock. They were often uh, very educated. And then you had those that were not especially educated, but they had the opportunity to start their own businesses. Well, Florence Price's father was a dentist. He happened to have been born in Delaware back in 1843, but because of the restrictions in Delaware, as a Black man, he moved up north and went to school in New York. At that time, it was difficult, actually, to pursue dentistry, the study of dentistry in the schools, because they didn't allow Blacks into dental school. And so he actually learned as an apprenticeship with a dentist, and eventually he was able to get a certificate. He eventually would move to Little Rock after having lived in Chicago and married Florence Price's mother. And so at this time, Dr. Smith and Mrs. Smith, they moved from one home to another to another, where they would eventually move to a very beautiful home that was especially grand. So Florence, she was raised in what what one considered to be upper class, but inside of the Black community, that was still different from being in the white community. So some of the problems that the Black person would experience within the Black race at this time was the problem of complexion. Complexion was either a gift or it was a curse. Florence Price's mother, whose lineage goes back to her grandparents, one was mulatto, which meant that the mother was a slave and the father was a white master who would bore a child. And so through the generations, Blacks who came out looking white or with lots of features of a white person, they would have to make hard decisions as to whether or not they're going to try to pass in the white society and never look back at their Black family members or those that might pass in maybe a Hispanic society and never look back and those that chose to stay. Florence Price's mother, after the death of her husband, Dr. Smith, she made a hard decision and she decided, uh, this is when Florence Price had just graduated from NEC and had come back and started to teach. Like the early 1900s? Right. So it was somewhere around 1909, 1910, somewhere in there is when her mother decided she was going to move back to Indianapolis and she slipped into the white society and was never heard from again. And it's believed that Florence, Florence's brother also did the same because by the time her father died, he had a will that did not include his son. And so at some point, 
he kind of disappeared from the family. And uh, Florence Price was left without a father, without a mother, without a brother. I think that's when she made a decision to get married to her, the young man that she was seeing. Getting back to the question that you asked, why? Why haven't, why wouldn't you have heard? Why maybe NEC didn't necessarily have the information? A lot of the information was hidden, which leads to part of the story of the rediscovery of the music. But part of it, obviously, also because of the resistance to the exposure of African-American artwork, music. In certain states, of course, we're all familiar with the Jim Crow laws. There was a very, very strong period of time in Little Rock where right at the time that Florence Price is born, things were shifting from actually not such hardships as they would then turn uh, by the time she was born. So what I mean by that is before her birth, the um, Black families were able to build. They were able to educate their families. For example, in 1898, inside of Little Rock, there were eight wood and coal yards 10 blacksmith shops, a cigar and tobacco stand, two hotels, nine restaurants, two jewelry stores, three tailor shops, uh, a drugstore and a mortuary, a cemetery. And so even uh, by 1903, there was a, a black bank. You had 30 black newspapers that were reporting and supporting black events, 24 churches, and a lot of blacks held political positions. So when Jim Crow laws set in, suddenly you have this equal but separate accommodations. And sadly, equal was not exactly what uh, we now understand it to have been. You had segregated schools, parks, businesses, sports, churches, hospitals. I read a passage from Raylinda Brown's The Heart of a Woman on the Life and the music of Florence B. Price, where Florence would ride the train and she was exposed to such a different quality of life compared to what she had grown up in. Her The train experience, being in the, the back of the train, the, the dirtiness, the, the disrespect and rudeness from the whites. It was such a change and inside of just a few years. So the restriction of education, it was illegal for some Blacks to read. They had schools that were built inside of the woods, one-room schools where children would study throughout the grades in secrecy. So I must say that I am absolutely not surprised that NEC would not necessarily have been afforded the information. And two, it's a difficult history. When you start to share one piece of information, then you, you have to share the other pieces of information to understand the whole picture. So it sounds like a very multifaceted problem of just everything stretching back from not just the rediscovery in 2009 and her death in 1953, but going back to Jim Crow, back to her mother, back to her 
grandparents in Delaware and just moving around and the difficult choices they had to make. Absolutely. Let's listen to, for a moment, some of her last music. She wrote her violent concerto number two in 1952. She died the following year. And from what I understand, this work was never even played, but it sounds like a very mature work. And we have a couple of examples from that. Let's listen to now the opening of her second violin concerto. It's a very peculiar opening to a violin concerto. We have a piano jumping in towards the beginning, which is which is unusual. The sound is very American and very New England sounding as well. And I guess that would go back to her studying at NEC. It's dissonant. It's got these combinations of, of brass and winds already right at the top. It's just, it's very, very different. And it's a shame that we never heard that or that she never heard it in her lifetime. Yes, and also some things that are particularly characteristic of her writing is the pentatonic scale, which is taken out of the um, slave tradition, in harmonically speaking. You hear that impressionistic characteristic, and at the same time, it feels very Brahmsian to me. I hate to use the word angular, but it's kind of a stern but rhythmic charge. But at the same time, very, very spiritual and uh, warm. Let's listen to an example just a little bit later with the violin coming in. And what I especially love about her music, Karen, is that it's so multifaceted with the things that you've been describing so far, use of pentatonic scale, not angular, but that kind of idea. And then also with earlier, the rhythm from a a juba dance. It's like you're looking at this multifaceted prism and you see all different kinds of things and that we're hearing her own sound. But then it's almost like a glimpse of Debussy and then a glimpse of Eric Korngold, all these composers that preceded her. Exactly. And um, one thing I wanted to mention was that plagal cadence, which I thought about. That plagal cadence, that's what we hear at the end of like a hymn with the Amen being sung. And she does a lot of that movement. And she also seems to like to take us to deceptive cadences, which apparently is uh, something also characteristic of her writing. I also like to draw your attention to the falling fourths and sometimes the falling thirds. When I used to go to church with my mom in Cumberland, Virginia, the choir used to sing. And of course, as a kid, I'm thinking, you know, I have perfect pitch. and I'm wondering, why aren't they not? Why are they singing off pitch? (laughs) And so I used to ask my mom, why? But well, I started to finally realize they're not singing off pitch. They're falling 
And so sometimes they go just above the third, almost to the fourth, and then they fall back down to the one. And so I started to realize, well, that's that's like a sigh. That's a sigh that comes straight out of the Negro spiritual. And when you think about the singing, singing during those times, Negro spirituals were sung for so many different occasions, from death to birth and everything in between. And so, of course, this is their moment to rejoice. It's their moment to let out the frustrations. It's the moment for them to mourn. And so there's a lot of power in that falling interval. And I hear that a lot in her music. Okay. Well, we're going to put on the show notes page more information about cadences. But you do hear that that cascading thirds and fourths and a mix of them that you're describing, which brings to that back of that style you're talking about with spirituals. We just did an episode on Dvorak's Symphony Number no. 9, and Dvorak is talking about using ideas and as source material, spirituals and Native American music characteristics. And famously in 1893 in the New York Herald was telling kind of a call to action to composers, look, you have all of the rich source material here yes. in America. You've got, right. I mean, it's music from the ground. And of course, basically everyone ignored him. But you see here, Florence Price doing exactly what he said, using all of those themes, all of those ideas to create this rich symphonic tapestry that, well, it's, it's our own American sound. Exactly. And her teacher, George Chadwick, also encouraged her to use these materials. And so thinking back about that time at NEC, she was there from the age of 16 to 19. And it's strange that the address that she submitted for her third year was in Pueblo, Mexico. Okay. And clearly, for some reason, something changed and she needed to pass as other. Okay. And so the conflict of her trying to pass as other at the same time writing music that truly, truly embraces her heritage is, is very curious. And going back to what you were describing before, her early life, her mother and her father, and the decision that her mother made to move away and pass as other, was there a confliction with Florence Price using all of this thematic material and ideas from the past but her mother was trying to to move on or, or move away from that. Was there conflict in that? So from my readings, I understand that uh, she would share these stories with her daughter. And so there is mention to uh, from the daughter that would express the issue of grandma made a decision, you know, to go back to Indianapolis and to pass as white. The daughter, I don't know what happened after Florence Price's death, but it kind of leads to ponder the idea that um, perhaps the family members were not as engaged for the reasons that her grandmother chose. It's, it's not very clear, but the fact is, is that Florence Price herself repeatedly fought for her music and 
interestingly, when she would write letters to get her music exposed, sometimes with each letter, she would have to express more and more. I realized that I'm a Black, I'm also a woman. I have these two things against me, but would you still consider taking a look at my music? So she fought quite a bit in her way. For example, letters to the conductor of the BSO, uh, Sergei Kusevitsky. The Boston Symphony. Yes, she wanted her music to be played, to be represented on the East Coast. And as she is growing larger in Chicago, and also her music was getting played in Canada. So I'd like to read to you a little quote from her second letter. The first letter, she had sent a copy of her scores of the E minor symphony and the piano concerto. And it was a very short note. She was uh, 48 at the time, 1935. And I think she just kindly asked if he would take a look. In her second letter in September 18, 1941, it says, I have been bringing to light with the result several performances, having colored blood in my veins and having been born in the South. I believe I can say that I understand real Negro music as well, if not better than the kind I studied in the East. I am hoping you will give something of mine a trial. Then a third letter dated July 5, 1943. She was 56. She cuts to the chase and she writes, I have two handicaps, those of sex and race. I am a woman and I have some Negro blood in my veins. Knowing the worst then, would you be good enough to hold in check the possible inclination to regard a woman's composition as long as emotionalism, but short on virility and thought content until you shall have examined some of my work? Wow. If I may, her fourth letter, November 6, 1943, she opens with, quote, Unfortunately, the work of a woman composer is preconceived by many to be light, frothy, lacking in depth, logic, and virility. Add to that the incident of race. And she closes in this letter with, in keeping with one last promise to myself that I shall no longer hang back, I am now being so bold as to address you. I ask no concessions because of race or sex and am willing to abide by a decision based solely on the worth of my work. Will you be kind enough to examine a score of mine? And after this letter, she did receive a note from the office, which was dated November 17, 1943. And it simply stated that when the conductor has time, the conductor will take a look at the music. Okay. The fifth letter, dated October 31st, 1944, Kusevitsky had looked at the symphony score, but no performances resulted from these efforts. Wow. So many letters, and it's not, a lot of time has passed by, and then it's just a simple thanks, but no thanks. Right. And it's... Nine years. Nine years. And the Boston Symphony had played a symphony by a woman before, Amy Beach. Mm-hmm. And with her persistent writing, it was just um, not going to happen. So let's go back for a second because 
She's writing about her symphony number one in E minor. And it wasn't like she was just writing Kusevitsky, um, music director of the Boston Symphony at the time, kind of as, um, you know, a, a Joe Schmo from the middle of nowhere, because her symphony, this one that she's asking to be played, was already performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Exactly. This is in, in 1932. She also won a competition with this same piece. Let's listen to a bit of the opening here of the Symphony Number no. 1 in E minor. reminded of uh, Beethoven's sustained dominant pedal leading back to the recapitulation in this moment, mixed in with that very strong one to four back to one movement, bringing back that, that hymn element, the spiritual element. Like that plagal cadence you were mentioning before. Yes, it speaks very clear of the flavor um, from that antebellum period. Hmm. It's uh, solemn has a yearning quality. And it has a lot of those same qualities. It sounds like she was taking inspiration from Dvorak in his Ninth Symphony, use of pentatonic. It's an E minor. It has mm-hmm. this uh, very intense opening. It's funny. She has to write, my music is not frothy. Please mm-hmm. just, just take a look. It immediately grabs your attention. And I'm wondering if maybe, because looking back to Dvorak 9, that was not very well received in Boston either, mm-hmm. from what I understand, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. also the reasons of Dvorak writing about um, using spirituals and black music as a source. But, I mean, you hear that already. This is in 1932. It's been played by the Chicago Symphony, and it's um, it's just great. It's stunning. And we go to now a movement from the symphony that she did in a couple of symphonies called Juba Dance. It's interesting how she uses the syncopation. She emphasizes the two and four, if you look at it from a four eight, with uh, against the steadiness in the bottom instruments. And it's important to note that these movements don't need to go so fast. Sometimes I will hear performances where the seems like the intention is to to speed through but no this is joyful this is very highly spirited and you have to imagine that dancers are dancing actually to this right because there's dance in a lot of symphonies that is not meant to be danced to mm-hmm. but here she's bringing that direct quality and there's a lot of percussive elements being brought in i guess usually made with your hands or chest or slapping, that kind of thing. That's right. Uh, clapping. Right. And then she's bringing in the percussion. And if you go too fast, you lose the groove. That's right. I love how it's this juba dance. And then and then also straight into a march you'd hear in a New England parade. Exactly. 
I'm thinking also that if you think about tap dancing, which came from this juba. So my question was going to be, she wins a composing competition with this symphony. The symphony is performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And the question is, well, you would assume that after this, there would be a big step up in a composer's career. There would be other commissions from big orchestras like the Boston Symphony. And it's sounding more clear that that never really, really happened. So we know the Boston Symphony at this time, what happened with the letters that you were describing. Was there any other success or her music getting more popular after this first symphony being premiered? So between the years of 19, from the 19, early 1930s, right up to her death, her career, especially within the Chicago area, was growing exponentially. She was um, getting commissions from the support of associations like, for example, the Chicago Club of Women Organists, the Musicians Club of Women. So she had a lot of commissions that kept her writing. She was very busy with the commissions, with performances as well. But at the same time, she was struggling financially because personally, what happened about probably within the year, the first year or two after arriving to Chicago, she and her husband separated. Her husband, who was a lawyer in Little Rock, came up to Chicago two months after Florence Price would move up to Chicago with her two daughters. And as she started seeing success after having won the competitions, her husband was not having success in developing his law practice. And so as a result, he became very angry. He became jealous. He became violent towards her on three separate occasions where he would hit her, hit her in her face, knocked her down. And then the last where he would pull out a gun to threaten to kill her and meant it. And so she had to flee for her life. She spent a number of years living from uh, house to house with her children. In fact, at one point, ended up living with her student, Margaret Bond's mother, and with her children. And so many articles would include the information that suggests that Florence Price and her daughters were here at this concert or there at that concert. So financially, she was always struggling, but she spent 100% of her time writing and getting her music played or she herself performing or Margaret Bonds performing. So it's hard to say that her career was falling. In fact, I think her career was moving forward. It just wasn't moving. It wasn't expanding nationally as she had hoped at the time of her death. As a matter of fact, Eleanor Roosevelt was at one of the concerts in Detroit at a premiere of her symphony. And um, it was performed at the Detroit Institute of Arts. And if I may, this is a quote from what she wrote in her nationally syndicated column on November 15, 1940. 
they played two movements in a symphony by Florence Price and one of the few women to write music. She is a colored woman and a native of Chicago who was certainly made a contribution to our music. The orchestra rendered her symphony beautifully and then played a Bach chorale, which ended the concert, much to my regret. So she had very significant followers. But again, between Blacks who were not necessarily going to be supportive because of their own personal jealousies and the difficulty at that time for Blacks in America, it made it very, very difficult for her music to push forward. Let's listen to another work that she wrote just a couple of years after her Symphony Number no. 1. This is from 1934, and it's her piano concerto. So she's writing symphonies, a lot of works for piano, violin concertos, and piano concerto. And the piano concerto, from what I understand, it's in one movement. It had to be reconstructed a bit. And we have a recording here. That's you with the New Black Repertory Ensemble and Leslie B. Dunner conducting. Uh, here's a little example of the first section of the piano concerto. I will say that uh, that passage that you selected is one that reminds me of Tchaikovsky's writing. You have these octave passages in the right and triplets against the ascending groups of four sixteenth notes. So in contrary motion, Mm -hmm. two different activities, rhythmically and physically, was ferocious. And it speaks of the power as a pianist that she had to have been as well. It speaks highly of Margaret Bonds, her student who would perform this with the um, Women's Symphony Orchestra. But um, this particular writing is, is in sharp contrast to her smaller works. Her smaller works are intricate, they're delicate, they're transparent, The large-scale works are much more massive physically, texturally, and um, extremely demanding. And there's not a lot of composers who can do that, go through all those different soundscapes. And we'll put links on the show notes page to examples of these recordings. This one is a view, and we're going to put more on the show notes page. We'll go now to something that we teased so gently in the beginning. That is a rediscovery of her music in 2009, not just figuratively, but kind of literally a whole stack of boxes of her music was discovered in a home, like in the attic back in 2009. Can you tell us a bit about that? So I had the opportunity to drive to Chicago to see what I thought was her actual home in Kankakee. A dear friend of mine, Morris Phibbs, who was the executive director of the um, Center of Black Research, we drove there thinking that we were arriving 
to the actual abandoned home. This was just a few years ago, I think back about three or four years ago. And um, the home that we were looking at, we learned it was the second home on the property. It was not the actual home, but it was the second home on the same property. But the dilapidation of this home gave us a real close-up feeling as to what the conditions were of the house that this music was found. And that was scary. The roof had caved in, the trees had overgrown, you know, piercing through any remaining pane of the windows. Clearly animals had lived in, in the homes. And what's unbelievable, the boxes remained in pristine condition over a 30 year period. There is nothing that I can put my finger to as in statements that explain why, who, how. But it can be very easily assumed that with the conflicts within family, those who may have chosen to leave the family for reasons for their own survival, perhaps, one might assume, along with other possibilities of why the house was abandoned. But this was her home. This is where she used to have her summer vacations. The music that was discovered was music that had just not been touched in those many decades. Wow. The house is dilapidated, falling apart. Trees are growing in. There's animals. I mean, it's just like, as you would imagine, a home being abandoned for decades, yet sitting there for all that time, these boxes of music, and it sounds like it was basically kind of, they were spared the disaster. They were spared the disaster. And by the time that the new owners would come to discover the boxes, they made a couple of phone calls and the music would eventually be purchased by the special collections at the University of Arkansas, which I had the opportunity to go to and take a look at. It is probably one of the most amazing discoveries in our American history. The music just reveals a couple of very important issues. One, the abandonment of the music. It also leads me to suggest the abandonment from the family because at least four years ago, when I did visit Chicago, I did visit her grave in the cemetery, Lincoln Cemetery, and it was basically unmarked. Hmm. There was no tombstone. You know, it's very sad to me. So it's not clear. It leaves a lot of questions. But the joy of discovering these beautiful pieces, masterpieces, is this gift that we now have to be able to sift through, sort through, and, and get performed, get published. I had a chance to speak with Dr. Barbara Jackson, visit with her, because she would end up editing a number of the works which I have in my possession, including in the Lano Cotton Suite. She expressed her joy in being able to be a part of that, that very incredible project. But there is no 
specific resource to refer to to say why, who. Right. So we started with an example from that discovery of music. We'll listen to another example from that Land of Cotton Suite, the same music that was discovered. And I don't know if we mentioned, but this is your playing from a recital. We're going to hear now part of a movement called Dreaming. just beautiful it is something that almost words can't describe when I think about how beautiful she writes after following the most scariest frightening moment in her life and if I may go back in time in 1927 she and her husband and two children were left with a a very, very difficult decision, and that was to flee Little Rock. What had happened to lead up to that were two things. One, a very, very chilling lynching of John Carter, which in a very small story, I will step back just a little bit to give the, the setup. There was an incident where a white woman accused a black man of having assaulted her. And she would later admit that it was not that gentleman, but it was her friend who was a white man. But the news had gotten out and there was a mob that formed. This mob wanted to hunt this man down and kill him and lynch him. And so when the police got a hold of that, I think they were in the midst of trying to ease the tensions between the whites and blacks at the time. And so they they made their attempt to hide this gentleman from the mob. And so as a result, the mob became even more infuriated and charged and needed to find their man to hunt that man down, hunt a black man down. So they found one. And John Carter happened to be that man that they chose, though he did nothing wrong. They killed him. They dragged his body behind a truck for approximately five miles down the center boulevard in little in the black community of Little Rock. And they stopped right at the intersection, which was uh, where the Mosaic Templars had been built. And right next door was Florence Price's husband's law practice adjacent to this building. And so in front of his law practice, this body of John Carter was hung and gasoline was poured onto his body. And the mobsters ran into the AME church across the street and pulled out everything that was flammable and set it afire underneath his body and burned his body. So that in of itself, I just can't understand the presence of, of mind 
how do you go on from something that happened just in front of your establishment? Her home was approximately one half mile down from this horrific scene. After this, allegedly a story of a white child had been killed by a black man surfaced. Don't know if there was any truth to it, but it didn't matter because families left. They left. And Florence Price took her two daughters and fled to Chicago. And it escapes me as to how she would have the presence of mind to then write these kinds of beautiful works. When I listen to them, they also, her piano music sounds the most personal. There's a lot of composers who write piano music, and it's kind of, you know, it's just for them. It's yes. probably not going to get published. It's just for them. And it sounds like a lot of this music that she's writing is is similar. It sounds so personal, and she sees unthinkable tragedy, the horrors that society is, is bringing on her and her community, and that just has to flee for your life, and then sit down and write this and keep moving on. A lot of her writing for piano, as you said, was very personal. And I think it also connects to the reflections on spirituals, because a lot of the spirituals had messages such as, there's a meeting tonight, there's trouble in the world, I can't stand the fire, go in the wilderness, happy morning. Price's titles are innocent, similar, dreaming at the wash tub, cherry blossoms in her hair, at our house, summer moon, rocking chair, fantasy dream boat. So I think she did what was a custom in her, in her family heritage, told a story. Wow. Not just in the music, in some of those um, characteristics that you mentioned, but in the titles themselves. Yes. She also wrote a piano sonata in E minor. This is a recording also from your recital here, a little bit of the first movement. hearing a testament to her as a pianist being able to play these huge Chopin-esque, you know, chords reaching very far with your fingers. But are we also hearing some of that, which you talked about before, those cascading thirds and fourths? Exactly. This is a, a very uh, complex moment in the sonata as we're returning to the recap. You're hearing and, and sensing this big moment with a lot of passion. She writes in a romantic style, though the structure is pretty formal and conservative. She doesn't 
deviate too much from the sonata form. But uh, she does bring in that, uh, those qualities as she has in the symphony with those falling intervals. And it's a very moving moment. It's very strong. It's, it's probably the, I know that in a number of uh, Beethoven sonatas, we have that return. We're waiting, 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 waiting to get back to the recap. But it, with her, you really sense the power. Hmm. That is the art of communication. And I don't perceive her having the thought of doing this for the purpose of making sure that she communicates. <laughs> this just comes naturally. As a matter of fact, I'm reminded that her very first composition was when she was 11 years old. It's not been found, but it was at 11 that she reached out to a publishing company with her first composition. It's pretty hard to find music really before the 1920s of hers. Yeah. I don't know how many pieces that she has composed. I do know that the standard statement is 300, but that number came out before the rediscovery. So I honestly don't know what the formal number is. Much higher, one would presume. Right. Well, thank you so much, Karen. Your insight has been just um, a privilege to listen to. And for everyone listening, if you've never been to FlorencePrice.org, you should go there. That's also a project run by Karen Walwyn. And we'll put a link on the show notes page as well. But thank you so much, Karen, for just enlightening us on all things Florence Price. It was my honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on Florence Price, other women composers of color that Dr. Walwyn recommends, and video performances of music by Price, Walwyn, and others, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. ¶¶